Howdy, and welcome to the Aggie Greats podcast. My name is Kenner, and I'm so glad you joined us this week as we dive deep to understand what makes the great great. Here on Aggie Greats, we get real as we answer some tough questions and uncover transformative ways to live life to the fullest. We're so glad you're along for the journey, so let's pursue greatness. Well, howdy and welcome back to the Aggie Greats podcast. Today we're joined with Michael Harding, who has over 30 years of experience uh, within the industry as a CFO, a CAO, a treasurer. Um, he's had a vast array of experiences within the, in- within the energy industry. Uh, he's the, currently the energy, uh, the executive assistant professor within the Department of Accounting at Mays Business School. And I can personally say from experience that he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to accounting. So, Mr. Harding, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kenner. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, I know the summer is coming to a close. Before we started this, we were talking about how fast the summer has gone, how we were thinking that the end was going to be kind of a slower deal, and then it just took off. But what are you looking forward to most with school just around the corner? What are you looking forward to most with everything starting back up? So I love it when the kids come back to school, the students come back. I know that there's a lot more traffic and there's a lot of other things that you know could get you down oh, if yeah. you lived here full time. But for me, it's all about the students. Uh, I love seeing their faces again. Um, I've had some uh, students over the summer since I taught the first summer session. Um, and then, of course, I get to participate in fish camp oh, yeah. uh, this coming week. So that's going to be a really a big treat for me and for my family. So we're looking forward to that. So we get to usher in all those new freshmen, class of 2026. Can you believe 2026? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I came in 2019. I'm graduating 2023, and I thought I was it sounded, a little baby. Yeah, yeah it's it crazy. like it was going to be forever away, right? Right. And now, now we're here. <laughs> it goes fast. So these, these students will come in 2026. And then they'll blink and they'll be graduating. I know. That's crazy. That was your experience as well for the most part, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I date back to 86. Ooh. So I was 86 <laughs> Way back. to 90. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. What? So you're kind of just jumped into the energy accounting program from what I understand. Can mm-hmm. you explain to people who maybe don't understand what that is, uh, why that's important and kind of why you're passionate about it being in that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, A&M has always offered uh, to accounting majors an energy certification uh, opportunities. So you, you can actually graduate with your degree, maybe your master's, and you get a certificate in what we call energy accounting. So you learn about oil and gas accounting. And now we're expanding into renewable energy and uh, sustainable energy and all the things that are really popping in the industry right now so that we can be on the cutting edge. So now we offer it to not only accounting majors, but also to finance majors. Oh, okay. Um, because I, I see a big need um, in the finance and accounting departments um, to really produce these students that are just a, just a step above the average person coming out of other, inter, uh, other universities um, so that we can kind of you know, provide the, the brightest and the best yeah, in the industry. For sure. Does that program... I mean, obviously right now with renewables being the, the big thing and all that, is that kind of the goal was to capture that new market where we're really, I mean, I guess it's not really a new market, but there's seeming to be a increasing focus and emphasis on right. these renewables. That's right. And so I, I know that you've been very deeply involved within the oil and gas industry and all that. So how are those sectors maybe evolving with all the new regulations and just kind of the different administrations who are running the country. You know, ironically, um, before we really got to talking about renewables, 
Um, I think students thought that the oil and gas industry was going to die, that we need to be more uh, aware of our climate. And, um, and so I, when I first started talking about energy, I said, you, you know, we are going to evolve into renewable and sustainable energy. Mm-hmm. Oil and gas isn't going to go away because it just can't right now. Yeah. Um, but we do need to continue to build and we need to really do really pay attention to our climate change. And I mean, just look around at what's happening in the weather. Yeah. It's kind of crazy out here. So we do need to be aware of that. And so what, what I told my students is that I think that it's going to be the oil and gas engineers that are going to come up with the right answers to parlay us into renewable, to solve sustainable. Those problems. Yeah. yeah. And so it's exactly what's happened. I mean, we, we talked to Phillips 66 and we talked to, you know, um, enterprise, we talked to all these different companies and, and they're all venturing into renewables. Um, in some way, shape, or form, whether it be wind or solar, and so it's really exciting uh, to see, you know, Marathon and these big companies, Chevron and you know, and Exxon and and BP and all those companies that are spending billions of dollars and in, in, into the industry, yeah, um, and just parlaying it into more of a renewable uh, kind of form instead of just oil and gas. Interesting. So obviously, you have a very long story as far as how you got into that industry if we take it all the way back to where it all started let's just talk about kind of your childhood and where you grew up where did you where were you born where did everything start for mr harding so i was born in dallas but then about eight years uh at eight years old our family moved to what we what was called duncanville texas so it's south of dallas okay um had a great football team great baseball team great place to to grow up um, and in fact, I'm still friends with all my high school uh, friends to this day. That's we, great. We keep up on Facebook. We just celebrated our 35th class reunion. 35. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. That's great. So what, I guess, before, uh, I mean, you were class of 88. What was the experience at A&M in your time compared to, because I feel like we have a very different experience. Yeah. What was For it sure. like way back? Yeah, way so back first in the day? of all, I was I was first generation, so I knew nothing about college. I didn't know anything about what to expect. Um, I didn't get the terminology, and you know, coming to A and M, it's all about the terminology because yes, we have our own exactly. language. And so, didn't go to fish camp. Was too too paranoid about you know sticking my neck out and meeting new people because I was pretty shy. Um, so I got here, and believe it or not, the main campus was the campus. There were maybe two buildings on West Campus. So you didn't have, because A&M feels like it's just an yeah. infinity sometimes. It's huge now, but the Wainer building didn't exist. Um, a lot of those buildings over there didn't exist. We didn't have a medical school. We didn't have the West Campus uh, library. We didn't have parking garages. Yeah, wow. We had parking lots. <laughs> and so, and you pretty much rode the bus or walked everywhere because it was very rare that you could find a parking space on campus. So it's just a lot, a lot more uh, different. The MSC was not the same as MSC that it is today. It was still beautiful. The flag room is pretty much the same. Wow! Believe it or not, um, still beautiful, and they take really good care of it. But the expansion that they've done is really nice. Wow, that's that's crazy because my experience is just building here, building there, and I think it's funny because my freshman year, I have when you're trying to take get all the credits that you need, you're off in Helensfeld, you're off uh, right. in Heck, you're in all these different buildings, and then as you start to focus in on your major, I feel like I live in Wainer now, right. which is kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, but when you grew up, obviously you came here, your first generation college student. 
who was kind of maybe a big mentor in your life, somebody who helped guide you to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, um, probably my professors were a big deal. I was I was pretty shy, so I didn't I didn't talk to them like I talk to my students now. Mm-hmm. Um, I always should have, um, but then my my family were big big supporters. Because they had never gone to school, yeah. I was like their shining star. You know, they sent somebody to A and M, and so they're pretty, pretty proud of me. I do remember calling my dad about seven thirty every morning in a panic, <laughs> especially right before an exam. And he'd talk me down off the ledge, and he'd say, "No, you, you got this, you got this." So I guess my dad number one, um, and then my professors right behind that. That's great. What was probably the biggest piece of advice that they gave you as you're kind of navigating all these different challenges? You know, that's that's a good question because this is a a thing that I'm really going to focus on with Fish Camp is that you got to believe in yourself. You can do anything you set your mind to. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we get a little intimidated. I mean, we are part of a seventy thousand dollar student body, right? And you're just this one guy that you know that you woke up with that morning. And you know who he is, and you're afraid that everybody else is going to see holes in your, in your personality mm-hmm. or in your know-how. And you just got to get past all that. You can do anything that you want to do. You just have to focus on it, try your best, and you can achieve great things. Yeah. I think from my personal experience coming into A&M, I kind of was, I'm pretty shy as well. I'm not really necessarily a very outgoing guy, but I felt like instead I had the same mentality of, oh, people are going to just find holes in my personality and things that I'm not good at and just kind of rip into those. But at A&M, I found that it was completely opposite. People are really encouraging and really want to help you become who you're trying to become. And so they're always looking to not make the holes bigger, but actually help fill in those holes. And I found that it's really important to lean into other people at A&M. They talk about the Aggie Network being a huge thing. It really is, especially when you have people from all different industries, people who are talented in areas that you don't necessarily feel like you're talented in. And just because you're an Aggie, you can say, hey, I need some help in this area. And in in a lot of instances, I've found that people are more than willing to come and help. And I mean, when I was traveling this past semester for athletics, uh, I missed probably a good chunk of our classes. But I was able to come in and just kind of live in your office for a bit and just help find find the information that I needed uh, and the support that I needed. And I found that that was not just a one case scenario, but with a lot of my professors, they're doing the exact same thing, which is why I really feel like A&M is the family that I've been looking for and kind of provides that growth that you need to move into the next chapter. You're exactly right. And it's like that in industry. When you get out of here, and you go wherever you go around the world. They see this ring, and you're instantly friends. That's true. It's it's just amazing I've been, how it happens. I go in the airport uh, when we're traveling to tournaments, and people see the ring. And they say they either say gigum or they introduce themselves. Yep. Uh, I had a friend who told me yesterday that she was in the airport and she had a ring, and and somebody randomly came up and said, "Hey, if you ever need anything, here's my number. You know, call me." Uh, you know, whatever you need. And it's crazy because it's really hard to explain. I think the, I don't know the exact wording of the quote, but it's like from the outside looking in, you don't understand it. What is that the exact quote? I think it's from the outside looking in, you don't understand it. And from the inside looking out, it's hard to, yeah, something remember. like that. I should get that down. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially before I go to fish camp. Yeah, probably so. I need to figure that one out. Uh, but all that to be said is 
you know, it's really hard to explain until you're right in the middle of That's it. That's right. Um, and did you find that that helped you get into when you took the leap of faith outside of college? Did you know right away what you were wanting to do? No, no. Right out of college, I went into financial services, um, doing more insurance and annuity type of accounting, um, not knowing really anything about energy. Didn't know anything about energy. My wife, on the other hand, graduated with the same degree. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to be in energy. Her whole family was in energy, and um, and she's from Houston. So okay. So she immediately went into Texaco at the time, and um, so and she made more money than me out of the gate. And so then I watched that happen. And I said, <laughs> okay, maybe I should be in energy. The competitive edge comes That's up. That's right. That's right. That's great. So how did you? So walk us through that story of the different maybe the different jobs that you've had throughout the years and how those have kind of built up to you getting to Talos and kind of all the roles that you had within that cool yeah so right out of school I worked for a company called the Bankers Assurance and and I went to Arlington because being from Duncanville I wanted to stay closer to home Um, but then within about a couple of years um, I was married by that point and my wife wanted to transfer back to Houston um, that's what happens when you marry a girl. Wherever she's from is probably where you're going to live. I'll keep Just that in mind. <laughs> little rule, rule of thumb there. And so we went back to Houston, and I got a job with AIG, which is a huge uh, energy company. I mean, uh, insurance company in in Houston. And so learned a lot about a lot about insurance and annuity accounting and and a lot of different things like that. And then, um, but I always kind of had this itch that I wanted to get into energy because. To be honest, there was just more money in it. And yeah. It sounded like a lot more fun than, than accounting for annuities and if or if and when people are going to die. Energy sounds <laughs> a little bit more right. exciting for right. sure. Right. So, um, so I got an interview with El Paso Energy, and now since since the uh, downturn in two thousand two, El Paso now is more uh, engulfed by Kinder Morgan. Okay. But then there's still EP Energy, which is the oil and gas upstream side. That still exists, but I was more on the merchant side, where we actually traded commodities, gotcha. and then I would do the accounting for those derivatives. So stayed there for about seven years. Um, really had a great experience, but then when the downturn Enron happened, El Paso was kind of right behind them. Had a downturn, and um, I always kind of wanted to do this upstream accounting, which is what my wife had always done. I said, well, that sounds kind of like, that sounds kind of fun. And that's kind of the meat of it, yeah. where you get to work with the engineers and you get to work with the geologists, and then you take all those volumes and you apply a price, and then you figure out how to account for it and then distribute it as royalties. What would you say, sorry, for the people who don't understand the difference between upstream and downstream, can yeah. you explain that Yeah, process? so there's, there's basically three sectors. There's upstream, which is where you actually go and explore and produce the hydrocarbons out of the ground. Okay. There's midstream, which is more of the transportation of those those products, and then there's downstream where you've got your refining, and then all the way to the commercial distribution. Okay, gotcha, perfect. And so upstream is what what I was interested in, just because it was kind of the front end, mm-hmm. and and the accounting of it sounded kind of cool. So I got a job with Apache uh, Corporation in Houston, had a blast. Did a lot of different different roles there. I was never afraid to, you know, raise my hand if they said they want, you know, this type of account. I would say I could do that, I could do that. So then when they said that they needed to replace one of the guys in Calgary, Alberta, I said I could do that. So I got uh, I got to be an expat in Calgary, which is it's just which is an amazing place to live. Uh, it is cold. 
it does snow about 10 months out of the year and it does start on Labor Day. Um, but all that being said, it is, it's a great place to, um, to learn. Uh, and back when I was there, which was in the mid 2000s, energy was booming in, in Calgary. And so it was, it was a lot of fun, great experience. Um, when I came back from Calgary, um, I was kind of looking for something a little sexier. You know, what could I do? Well, back then, IFRS, so International Financial Reporting Standards, was all the rage. Everybody said, we're all going to go to IFRS, so everybody needs to know it. And there was a company called RigNet that was a private equity startup that wanted to go uh, switch all their accounting to IFRS and then go public in Norway because they thought the Norwegian um, or the Norwegian uh, folks and um, professionals really understood what RigNet was all about because they were a worldwide communications uh, service company. And so we did. I worked with Deloitte and we converted everything from US GAAP to IFRS. Wow. Sounded sexy, right? <laughs> yeah, really exciting. It, do, it is sexy to an accountant, but I know it sounds kind of kind of goofy. How long did that process take? It took it took months. It took yeah. months. So as soon as we were done, um, the financial crisis happened in 2008. So the bottom fell out of the market. We were not going to go public. We were not going to um, really do anything but make you know just try to clip our coupons and stay alive, right? Yeah. Because when when you're a service company, the first thing that that is expected during a downturn is for you to cut your price. Well, if you cut your price, then how are you going to pay your pay your bills? Right. And so it was kind of this this chain reaction. So anyway, we navigated through that, but in the process, we realized that we probably would do better going public on the NASDAQ. Okay, interesting. So what does that mean? Harding had to take us back to U.S. GAAP. Oh, man. So I went from U.S. GAAP to IFRS, from IFRS back to U.S. GAAP. So now you understand it back and forth, though. I'm afraid I do. I'm afraid I do. And that was painful. <laughs> Good and bad. It was painful. So, But the, the downturn didn't last that long. I don't know if you guys remember, but it was pretty much 2008 and 2009. So we finally went public, and it was a small offering. In, uh, in 2010. And by that point, and what you'll learn about me is I'm an entrepreneurial guy. Oh, so I, love, I, like, I love entrepreneurship. I like the startup and the grind. But once you get public and you're you're part of that front-end commercial roadshow, mm-hmm. that's probably not me. Okay. And so I actually exited RigNet and I took some time off. I was, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and went to work for PKF Texas, which is a great... Um, accounting firm in Houston and I actually did consulting on accounting systems because I figured out that through a conversion that we did at RigNet that I actually was pretty good at communicating between a technical IT person and being an accountant and making those two um, mesh and so I did that for a while but then I got a call from my CFO that I had worked for back in El Paso and it's so funny because I was just telling my wife I had said you know, if there's anybody that I'd really like to work with again, I'd like to work with John Harrison. And then lo and behold, he calls you up. He calls me out of the blue. He got my number from my sister-in-law who was still at Apache and he was doing something with Apache. And he said, Hey, where's Harding? She goes, well, he's still here. So he calls me up. We have breakfast and he says, okay, we're, we're going to start. We're going to have this startup offshore. Didn't know what the name was going to be. But he had a management team. They had been they had been funded before. They had done two uh, private equity uh, spinoffs, and and they'd made a ton of money on it, and really had done a great job. The management team was superb. And he says, "So we're gonna we're gonna have this startup, and it's gonna be offshore, and we're gonna take it public." 
And right off like, the bat, you're like, oh, not I'm again. Like, oh. And he said, and you've taken that company public, right? I said, yeah. I said, John, that's hard. I yeah. said, are you sure that's what the end result's going to be? He goes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're going to take it public. And I said, okay. He goes, well, come meet the team. Come meet the team. So I went and I met the team. And Tim Duncan was the CEO. Steve Heitzman was the COO. And um, I was kind of skeptical. I was kind of sitting back going, I cannot believe I'm about to bite this off. Because this is kind of crazy. I am about to give up my life for yeah. however long until we go public. But I knew, I knew just by meeting those guys, if I wasn't part of that special team, I was going to miss out. I said, yeah. these cats are going to amount to something. And, and that's so what I you want be, when yeah. you're starting a business yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, you want a really solid team. Yeah. It, oh, it is. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that Aggie spirit. I mean, you're, you're great as an individual Aggie, but you're a lot stronger if you are a group of Aggies. In this case, we weren't Aggies, all of us. I was the Aggie representative. There you go. John Harrison was an Aggie. And then, um, and then the others were Mississippi State and Texas Tech. And so it was really kind of cool to be part of that group. Anyway, long story short, it was, uh, it was a kind of a bumpy ride. Mm -hmm. So John Harrison retires. They bring in another CFO. And, uh, and he uh, lasted for about eight months while we were trying to go public in 2014. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we, we're getting ready. We're, we're getting ready to file our S-1. And what happened in 2014? Commodity crisis. Great. Okay, Another so I one. don't really have a yeah. black cloud hanging over my head. I mean, financial Seems crisis. Seems like it's following and, you around. Yeah, it kind of is. So anyway, uh, so we uh, had the financial crisis. We did not go public. Uh, the CFO leaves. Another CFO comes in. He lasted eight months. We weren't going public. In, mm -hmm. a, in a public CFO, once you've been on that side, you don't want to go back to private equity necessarily and Why start all over again. Because they're ready for that roadshow, right? Yeah. I was telling you, the guy who's really on the public front face, that's mm -hmm. what they really thrive to do. Okay. That's what they enjoy. Where a guy like me, I like the grind and getting us there. In the background type of thing. In the background support yeah. guy. So anyway, um, interim, I was interim CFO, interim CFO, interim CFO. So finally, when uh, the CFO left because we weren't going public, I raised my hand and I said, hey, I want to be the CFO. And I'd been told, because I, to, I was an accounting major, uh, you're not really going to be the CFO because accounting majors aren't CFOs. We get it for investment bankers and finance guys and all that stuff. I said, I understand, but I can get you public. If I don't fire me, my CEO goes, uh, Harding, you're crazy. <laughs> and I said, well, just try me. And so um, it did take four more years. And so we rode that wave. And we rode the wave by doing some risk management. So we were big into hedging. And our private equity uh, sponsors were big into making sure that we were hedged. So when the downturn hit really rock bottom in 2016, we were hedged at $95 a barrel. And That's it was trading at nice. 26. Yeah. So it really kind of saved the, the company. Yeah. And so we were able to reinvest um, those dollars and, and produce uh, one of our biggest finds that's still producing today, which really was a turnaround for the company and made sure that we were going to be stable. Wow. I, I really like that story about how they kind of told you that you couldn't. And I think when we first started talking, you said how important and that message that you wanted to put out there is that, you know, people, a lot of people will tell you you can't do something. And, you know, and I think that that's also part of the entrepreneurial spirit. I think when people come in, they're like, okay, one in 10 businesses fail. This is not going to work. It's too much work here. And you just keep pushing and grinding. And uh, I guess, is that kind of your yeah, big piece of advice? Yeah, believe in yourself. Yeah. Believe in yourself. You know, if you, uh, 
if you put put your mind to it, you pray a little, and yeah. I pray a lot, probably, <laughs> probably a lot, um, and just you know really do your best, um, and you go back to those core values of that what Aggies stand for, you mm-hmm. know, respect and excellence and integrity, and leadership and selfless service. I mean, all those things really do come into play in your in your actual corporate life. Yeah, and I think, and also a big thing that people need to realize, and what I think a lot of people when they look at your story, they don't see. And I think this is a big misconception for a lot of students who come out of college and they see, whether it's on LinkedIn or social media, they're like, okay, you know, CFO of Talos, you know, but they don't look at any of the the long history that it takes to get there. I mean, and you, you even said from the time where you raised your hand and you said, hey, I want to be CFO to when you were actually CFO, that's four years. And so I think there's a lot of people, especially in my shoes, people who come out, they're like, Oh, I'm just going to make it happen. I'm going to rise through the ranks. It's going to take a couple of years. Uh, but for you, I guess, what was what was that time span? What would, I mean, in total, how long do you think that took from coming out of college to where you ended oh, up wow. ultimately wanting to be? So that was uh, 28 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to really invest. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. It's funny you brought that up. I was thinking about that this morning that, you know, when you really want to commit to something, um, you're going to have to put in the time. Yeah. You know, just like when you study for accounting 328 and right. accounting, right? It's a lot of time. <laughs> you have to put in the time to get the result. Right. And so you have to put in that time and that effort and that, um, that know-how mm-hmm. and believe in yourself and pray your way through it. And you can pretty much pull it off. Yeah. It just takes time. And you need that team around you. Oh, people definitely. who are supporting you. Yeah. What, what I always tell people um, that are in my groups is I hire what you're not. We're not everything to everybody. I'm not the biggest financial wizard. Yeah. I'm pretty good at accounting. Pretty but then good. I find people who really know all those. Because we talked about filling the holes. Yeah. That's exactly what you do. I remember being over HR, um, and I knew nothing about HR. I probably was the most inappropriate person for them to have over HR. And I found the perfect HR manager at the time uh, and, because I knew nothing. Yeah. Now she's gone on, and now she's a VP of Talos wow. at the HR level. It's just so so thrilling to see people in your past. How do you thrive. find – I think it's really easy for maybe other people to look in and say, oh, he's not super strong here, not super strong here. How did you find those holes that you needed to fill? Was it from trial and error? Was it from people that were in your circle kind of telling you these sort of things? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for – you know, for people necessarily to give you that that feedback, mm-hmm. but you have to be self aware. Gotcha. Don't don't kid yourself. Just like go back to studying for the exam. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've studied so hard. I've studied so hard. Have you? Yeah. Have you really? Do you really know? Do you really know the ins and outs of what we just talked about or whatever? And so that's what I would do to myself. I would say, you know, I'm. You know, I think I'm technically sound. I'm kind of a gap guru. But am I the best gap guru? That's fair. Yeah. Or is the guy sitting across from me the best gap guru? And so I just would leverage folks that I knew had talents in certain areas uh, and then just leverage them the best I could. That's huge. Yeah. I know that when you took your first company public, you wanted to, you were kind of like, oh, I don't really like this. Now Talos goes public. When you eventually got out of it, what made you want to come back to a You know, that's, that's not, that was always a goal. Um, Aggieland is is our common ground. My my wife's common ground. She was from Houston. Yeah, I was from Duncanville. 
we met here, met in accounting class here. So we always thought, you know, well, we'll probably retire in Aggieland, right? Um, but we didn't think we were going to retire in Aggieland at 50-something years old, right? Yeah. And so it came really fast, And uh, but I'd always planned to give back to the university. I'd been inv- involved in the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship mm-hmm. for several years by this point, probably six years by this point. And I loved working with students. I loved seeing those bright minds come up with ideas and, and cultivating those ideas with them, which really was something that, that really excited me. And so um, I was talking to the directors of the McFerrin Center, and I said, what could I do for the university? Is there something that I can do maybe for the McFerrin Center or something? Because I'm, I'm young. I want a job. I, mean, yeah. I want to just sit at home and, and do um, the yard. And right. so uh, they said, well, would you teach? And I said, teach what? And they said, accounting. And I said, ooh. So they introduced me to James Benjamin, who's now retired, but he was—he's—he's uh, he's actually uh, who the the department's named after. Oh yeah, yeah, that's and right. So I met him. Basically, he hired me that day. Wow. And um, because he also heard that I was from Energy, and he knew that we were offering this Energy certification program. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was no faculty with an Energy Energy background, and so I was going to fill a couple of holes. Yeah. Um, fast forward. Um, uh, they gave me a book and they said, be ready by next semester. So I was part-time. They gave me a shared office and I was part-time uh, just kind of getting the notes down and getting ready to uh, to really start teaching the next semester. So this is like September and I was going to start in January. Yeah. Okay. So I was all, I was, I was, that's no sweat, right? Because I can oh, do that. Easy. So by October, one of the professors uh, who was expecting her first child had to go on bed rest. So I got 30 minutes notice that I was taking over a class. Oh my goodness. And and that I was giving a quiz that I hadn't written. And I was going to give an exam that next week that I hadn't written. And I hadn't even studied the chapters that all that was over. So they're just throwing you in. Yeah. They're saying, all right, start swimming. I might have been sweating just a little bit. Just a little bit. So, but anyway, I came in. The students were so gracious. They're so resilient, and um, and we just we just kind of took it and ran with it. Yeah. Um, I still, you know, I'm very close to those students to this day. They just graduated, mm-hmm. so I got to watch them walk across the stage, which was pretty that's exciting. Awesome. It's like, oh, that's my first class, and so it's pretty pretty fun. So then I just it took off, but I probably shouldn't say this, but a black cloud kind of followed me on that deal too because what happened in 2019 cl- yeah another downturn another and COVID, COVID and yeah geez yeah and so I had to navigate through that so I not only was a new teacher but now I was trying to figure out this thing called zoom oh. so I didn't even know what I was supposed Great. to be doing yeah and so and, and when you're an executive you don't even type for yourself you don't you don't do anything for yourself yeah. it's all just done and you you show up and you kind of do your thing do your magic and, yeah and check off some boxes but so now I'm a teacher and I'm trying to figure out Zoom on my own and I'm writing my own notes and I'm, you know, very administrative. So it was a, it was a humbling experience. That's yeah, for sure. for sure. When you look at all these, I know you've, you've been through a lot of different economic downturns. And I know this is jumping a little bit back over to your time in the energy industry. But what how do and how do these energy companies kind of look at these downturns and kind of how did what's. What's their mindset? Because as a consumer, I feel like it's very different than the way maybe the businesses look at it. And maybe especially now with the recession, with oil prices being through the roof and all that, how do these energy companies look at those problems and kind of address that? Like what's the inside mindset? Yeah, you know, I think my CEO was one of the best at 
risk management and planning. And what you got to do is you got to focus on what are you going to do with your capital? You only have so much. Mm -hmm. And if there's a downturn, you're going to have uh, less. And so you got to really navigate your capital. How, how am I going to spend my money to, to maybe continue to grow or sustain the company as it sits right now? Yeah. And how am I going to mitigate any further downturns? So I mentioned hedging before. It's a big deal, especially in, in a lot of different industries, but you know, specifically yeah. in energy, you want to make sure that you've locked in a price that is going to meet or hopefully beat whatever board package you last went over with gotcha. your investors. Okay. And that's what I guess airline industries do the same thing. They absolutely yeah. do. Okay. Gotcha. And then your time within HR, I didn't realize that you kind of looked over that part, but uh, what what kind of core values? I know you kind of have an acronym for these core values. What core values do you look for in not only, I guess, the students that you're looking for that you really enjoy teaching, but also the people that you're trying to bring on and hire? Uh, what what are those core values that you're looking for? The a number one thing is integrity. And it is one of our core values. Um, you know, yeah. respect, excellence, leadership, integrity, selfless service. And then I always add an H because I, I call it relish. Relish. Because if you do all those things and you don't have humility, then you just basically undone every, all yeah. the good that you've done. So integrity, I think, is the one that I look for. You know, um, you don't have to be the brightest and the best out of your class because if you are willing to put in the work and you're, you're, uh, you have the integrity of an Aggie mm-hmm. then, and you could show it, then that's really the, the thing that we're looking for. Leadership will then follow. Excellence will then follow. You'll become respected as long as you are respecting of other people. Yeah. And then selfless service just kind of is a thing that we should all be aware of. I mean, everybody around us is kind of in our shoes. We don't have to be arrogant. We can be the big man on campus. Yeah. But if you're humble about it and you're not afraid to give that selfless service to your neighbor, then that's what it's all about. And that's that's what we're looking for. Yeah, I think that's so important because and what, like you were saying earlier, uh, I, I think before this conversation, we were talking about how important it is to not try to run past everybody but really run with people that's right and i think when you were starting talos and you got invited onto the team it's really easy to be and especially when you're kind of in the cfo spot you're out back in and out there's this tendency to be like okay i'm trying to run past everybody you know i I don't want somebody to fill that spot Uh, but then it's your best growth was when you were running with those people that's right and I That's think that right. that goes back to those core values as well. Absolutely. I mean, you as a student athlete, you get that, right? Yeah. Because you learn from your teammates. Well, the same thing happens in industry. The same thing happens in your corporate world. Because, again, those guys or, or ladies know just a little bit more about something that you're going to benefit from. And you put all that together. I remember when I was an orientation uh, leader and I was trying out for orientation leadership. And they asked me, what did I think about A&M? And I said, well, you know, it's kind of a melting pot. And they said, is it? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, we all kind of come together and we mesh together. And they said, is it a melting pot or is it a tossed salad? Where each of us are individual and together we're better. And I said, oh, I'm going to remember that. I like that. that. And I've used it over and over and over for 40 years. That's great. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Because, I mean, I think that that's exactly the way I mean everybody's coming together everybody's growing and yeah. pursuing the same things like you said um, wow yeah no, that's a really I like that um, when we're looking at those those core values I guess how do you try to what are different ways that you try to instill that into 
your students as you're teaching? You know, that's that's a really good question because I do think about it. When I'm thinking about my classes and I'm thinking about the students, I think about I need to show them respect. And in return, I'll be given respect. Mm-hmm. I need to show them excellence. What is excellence to them? Excellence to them is maybe, maybe or maybe not getting an A in the class, but really hopefully they find excellence is learning the material and feeling good about what you just did. Yeah. Leadership, I try to teach them leadership by example. Okay, so I want them to see me provide that selfless service. You know, when somebody is needing a little bit of extra help, making sure that I'm available, you know, even outside of those, you know, um, yeah. stated uh, and you did that hours. so well for me. Yeah, I, I, I just think that's part of the job. I mm-hmm. think that, um, you know, I don't think that you should be taken advantage of, and I don't think that you should give everybody, you know, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah, free pass. But at the same time, you only get, you, we only get students for three months or however long a semester yeah. is, and the, in the summertime, it's five weeks. So it's yeah. a very small window that you can make a huge impact and hopefully show them integrity, because if I make a mistake in class, I own it. Yeah, that's I say, true. you know what, I'm so sorry about that, and I just own it. And so I think if you put all those things together, they can see in me what hopefully I am projecting, which is this relish. No, I think <laughs> relish. I, I really like that. And something that really stood out to me, and we were talking about that selfless service part, uh, as a student athlete in my own experience, tennis is a very individual sport especially when it comes to singles i mean you have doubles uh i don't feel like in the united states that's really pushed very hard mm-hmm. uh it's just kind of pushed to the side a lot of people are focusing on singles because that's right. where a lot of the money is that's where you know you see the big names are in singles right. and it's very very easy to come into college sports with this individualistic mindset even though it is a it's a, a team sport and that self-service piece i found is so important for the best teammates that I've had, my the guys who I love running alongside are the guys who don't come in with this, I'm better than everybody, I'm going to just climb my way up the ladder. It's, I come here to make A&M and to make this team better. We're all coming together to win a national championship. And I think that that's the mindset uh, within the athlete side. Uh, and then also I think within school there's a, a mindset uh, within the different business honors departments, the right. the honors departments, everybody's running with each other. It's not trying to get out and climb the ladder faster than somebody else. It's we're all really pushing each other towards the best that we can be. And I've, it's leaning into that. That's the biggest thing that I've gotten out yeah, of it. Yeah, so that's why in in my classes we do group quizzes together. Yeah, because I'll pair up a finance major with an accounting major. Each of them are going to have a different talent and focal point and you can really learn from your peer yeah sometimes you learn better from your peer than than just me saying the same thing over and over and over it, like you know you go and you you get with katie and and you say oh well, what he's really saying is yeah blah, blah, blah. it's like oh although why I, didn't he say it like that yeah yeah and so i think that that camaraderie mm-hmm. that's why we do that in class because i want to i want to build an environment where everybody feels free to speak up yeah, feels free to ask questions that they think are dumb because there is no dumb question. And I know that's cliche to say, but it really isn't because guess what? If you ask me that question, there's probably six other folks in the audience that were wondering the same thing, but they didn't raise their hand. Yeah, and for you as a first-generation college student, you were probably one of those people oh, yeah, where I didn't raise my hand. you're like, well, I don't want to talk. <laughs> no I don't want to get called out. No uh, way. No, that's great. 
I know that you're going off to fish camp next week, and it's probably kind of a big secret a little bit. I guess by the time this comes out, everybody will know you uh, within the fish camp world. But what goal going into fish camp, what's your goal? What's the biggest piece of advice that you want to instill to these kids? Because now you're not having them for three months. You have them for two, three, three days, days yeah. right? So what what are you trying to, at the end of the day, what do you want them to come out of fish camp I with? want them to come out more confident than they went in, more confident in themselves. Just to say, you know what, I might be a little different, and that's okay. Yeah, um, I'm gonna be me, and I'm a, but I'm part of a big organization called A and M, and Aggies. We are the Aggies, and the Aggies are we. It's really, really key. But you can be all that and still just be yourself. So if I were to go to fish camp at their age, mm-hmm. I would have been the wallflower standing against the wall. So when I go to fish camp on Wednesday. I'm gonna be looking for those wallflowers because you will not believe the talent that's that's kind of uh, all tied up inside yeah. of them, and I want to see that talent come out. And I think that three days of just that love and support uh, within our organization, um, I think we're gonna really really bring some folks out of their shell, and they're gonna have such a better first experience yeah. in their first semester if we do that. No, I totally agree. That was kind of I was one of those wallflowers and. I mean, you probably were at some point, and oh, yeah. you know, to be able to do the amazing things that you've done, you know, you needed people to draw you out and that's to right. bring you into the community. So that's, right. that's huge. Well, as we wrap up the episode, I want to bring you into some quick fire questions. So it's one word, one se- uh, sorry, it's either like a one word or a one line response to these questions. Uh, just first thing that comes into your mind. Right. What would you say is your favorite food? Hmm. Probably hamburgers. Hamburgers. Favorite drink to go along with that? Water. What about your favorite sports team? Oh, Texas A&M Aggies. Oh, of course. All of Why them. do I even ask that That's question? Right. Uh, favorite athlete, past or present? Ooh, Kenner Taylor. Oh, <laughs> geez. I, I like this part. I like this episode. Do you ever have any big pet peeves, things that people did? Being late. Being late. I do not like to be late. And then... Last one, describe yourself in three words. Hmm. Honest. Hopefully humble. Fun. Honest, humble, and fun. I like that. And the final question, in your opinion, what does it take to be an Aggie grit? Hmm. You know, I think it's, it goes back to everything we just talked about. Um, I think that you got to live the talk. You got to walk the walk or whatever they say, but you can say all these buzzwords and you can, you can, um, acknowledge that they all are standards within A&M, the respect and excellence and leadership and all those things. If you don't live it, then you kind of undone everything that you just said you understood. Yeah. And so I think that that's what it's all about is you've got to really project the person that you think an Aggie should be. Um, and believe it. If you don't believe it, don't do it. But if you do believe it, then you know, walk down the hall and say howdy. Put a smile on your face. I mean, this is a great organization to be in. And we're very lucky as students to have been accepted to this unbelievable university. So many thousands don't get in. Yeah. And so I want, I want folks to realize that, especially even in fish camp this week. You know, congratulations. You just beat out thousands of people to sit right here where you're sitting to listen to me talk. You know, it's just kind of an amazing experience. And to leverage those, those uh, that Aggie network, 
once you get out of here, it never goes away. Yeah. It never goes away. I'm meeting folks all the time, you know, even in my neighborhood that have, that date back to the, you know, 1968 graduate Yale leader or, you know, this guy and that guy, uh, you know, that have been instrumental in, in contributing to the university with their, with their gifts and their time. Yeah. Uh, it's just amazing to be surrounded by that. No, I find the same thing. And I think the biggest thing for me has been, first of all, being able to leverage that Aggie network, but then also a really positive, and, and this is something you hit on, is that mindset of it's a privilege to be here and it's a privilege to be an Aggie and to have a community of other people who feel the same way. And I think exactly. that the best experiences that I've had are when people that I'm surrounded with have that same mentality and they're saying to themselves, to other people, hey, you know, you're an Aggie and just because of that, I'm loving you, you know, I'm here for you. And I think that that's the spirit that we're looking for. That's what makes an Aggie great, somebody who's really plugged into that community. Absolutely. Yeah. So if people want to get in contact with you, want to come to your office for advice or uh, just email you with a question, what's the best way for people to oh, get yeah. in contact with you? You can always reach out to me through my AM email, which is mharding at tamu.edu, or I'm in Wayner. I'm on the fourth floor, 460H, as in Harding, so it's pretty <laughs> easy to remember. Um, pretty much available anytime. I, I give out my cell number to all my students. It's on the syllabus. Um, some of them use it. So take his don't. class is what he's saying. That's and right. You'll get his, Always yeah, take Yeah, take his class and you'll get his number right away. That's right. So, oh, well, thank you so much. We've had a great conversation, and I feel like we've covered so many different topics. So uh, appreciate your time, and thanks so much for everything. So thanks for the opportunity. appreciate it.